Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 134, air date June 14th, 2017. Bus, we actually had a bunch of MIT students and local citizens who actually gutted it, refurbished it. We call it Real Indian One. <laughs> As you can imagine, against a fake Indian, uh, Elizabeth Warren. But it's a cool bus because it has a, a bed in there, it's got a conference table in there. In fact, we were doing donation calls on the drive here so we can get work done. It's got full power in there. So it's, it, it's an innovation unto itself. Um, but I'm really pleased to be here. You know, for me, uh, this election against Elizabeth Warren is a historic one. And uh, so first I want to ask, how many of us want to really defeat her? <laughs> yeah? Okay, good. Can I have two hands? Two hands, <laughs> I mean, you, we really want to beat her, right? And I ask that because Elizabeth Warren to me represents um, not just Elizabeth Warren, but she represents an institution of power. And we need to understand that institution of power and what we can do to win against that. Um, if you really look at what she represents, we have to go back a little bit to understand the contrast of the America that our founders actually created. You know, the founders of this country had a unique vision. Um, they were really innovators, you know, they were futurists, they were thinking way ahead of their times. You know, they were children in many ways of the Enlightenment period. You know, the 1600s, 1700s was a period of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. And these amazing individuals were thinking into the future. And that future was a country where there was not going to be anyone between us and our creator. If we go back and read the works of Jefferson or Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine wrote this great book called The Age of Reason. And the foundations was that we would create a country where reason prevailed, you know, where we would use our mind, body, and our soul, and that it would be us directly communicating with our creator. There weren't supposed to be monarchs, right? Remember, prior to that, the king thought that he was the interceder between us and God, right? And that was the foundations of um, this American Revolution, which said that we would have a direct connection and that, was, and that connection was going to be based on each one of us as citizens taking bold steps, brave steps. We would go into the unknown, right? Um, we would use our mind for innovation and we would create things. That was the foundation of the America that my parents left um, India for. You see, um, I don't know if how many of you know India has a caste system. Everyone familiar with this? So in India, I was considered a lower caste or untouchable or what we would call a deplorable. And my parents left that India with me, and I was seven years old, and I remember landing Kennedy Airport, and uh, we didn't even know what snow was, and I was wearing shorts, and it was snowing. And we had to go to the Salvation Army and get, you know, all my winter gear. But that was the America my parents came to, and here were two very bold people who left India into the future, into a future where they saw that they could do better for their kids, where their kids could get better health, better education, and be able to, you know, achieve their infinite possibilities. And I knew that as a child, that what was in India was vastly different than what I had here. So if you look at my journey, it's, it was a journey into that future, you know, into that uh, ability to uh, exercise myself in, in this opportunity that America provided. And I'll share a little bit of that with you. I don't want to speak too much about myself, but it's more about the America that was afforded to me. You know, I went through the public school systems. Uh, we initially settled in Patterson, New Jersey. I'm not familiar if you're, Patterson's one of the poorest cities. And my parents, 
you know, they didn't have school choice in those days, but whatever money they made, they kept moving to the better public school systems. So I think we moved to four school systems in a period of seven years. Patterson, to Clifton, to Persephone, and to Livingston, all public school systems, and Livingston being one of the wealthier public school systems. But in each step that we took, you know, I took advantage of that because I knew, again, the opportunity that was afforded to me. So by the time I was 14, I'd actually finished up calculus in the ninth grade. My high school didn't have any more courses to give me. And I ended up, was very fortunate because of a visionary, another futurist, a professor at NYU, who recognized that one day, remember this is 1978, that one day we would need software engineers. So he had put together a special program where 40 students across the United States competitively could apply and to learn computer programming at a New York University, seven, pro, uh, seven programming languages. I was fortunate to get selected. My dear mom would drop me off in Newark. Remember, it's a 14-year-old kid now, Newark Penn Station. Nowadays, parents are afraid to let their kids walk down the street. And so I would go to Newark, and, and I would take, uh, come on in, yeah, I would take the train in uh, to New York. Uh, in the middle of Washington Park. If you've ever been there in those days, it was try before you buy. People were selling drugs and everything. So this 14-year-old kid went there. I, uh, it, was a, it was an eight-week intensive school that summer. My high school uh, teachers were concerned, what do we do with Shiva? You know, he doesn't have, he's got humanities classes to finish, but he also has uh, no more math courses. So uh, I was, again, very fortunate. We had a, another woman teacher in that high school who was, again, a futurist. She was thinking way ahead, and she said, you know, this kid should be allowed to do something different. So she changed the core curriculum, where I was allowed to travel to Newark, New Jersey. There was a, uh, what's now known as Rutgers Medical School, and a situation was set up where a 14-year-old kid was given a full-time job. So think about that. So I, uh, my teachers allowed me to travel 30 miles into Newark, and I was given a very interesting job. Many of you, over the age of 40 may remember, you know, 1970, of what jobs could women really have? Anyone remember? Teacher? Teacher. Nurse. Nurse. Secretary. Secretary or housewife, right? That was a very limited job opportunity. And in this medical college, like in most institutions, there was a way that people collaborated. And, it, and this collaboration system, uh, this was the old-fashioned inter-office mail system. And it was basically every office had a secretary, if you remember. And she had a thing called a typewriter. Everyone's over the age of 40, so most people remember this. Um, most of the people be below the age of 40, some of you guys may not know this, but on that desktop, which was a physical desktop, was an inbox, an outbox. There were folders, right? There was a typewriter where the secretary put a piece of paper, put carbon paper. If you remember, type a carbon copy, CC, meant carbon copy. And she would write a memo, right? What's that? She would use a lot of whiteout before the delete button existed, right? And this communication medium was how collaboration took place. If you wanted to hire someone, you'd put a, right? You'd put a cover letter, you'd attach their resume, if you were doing your grant application, and then you'd put it in this little envelope. You remember, you tie it around, and it got sometimes put in a pneumatic tube, got sent around, sometimes it was delivered. And I was given this very interesting challenge as a 14-year-old kid to convert this entire system into the electronic version. And I wrote 50,000 lines of code, worked until 2 a.m. in the morning, and I called it email. Okay, so a 14-year-old kid was given this amazing opportunity in Newark, New Jersey, to invent email as we know today. Now you gotta understand, 
there's a very interesting phenomenon going here. The, the, uh, the lawmakers in Washington, so I experienced how legal issues were as a kid, did not understand what software was. They thought software was sheet music, right? They thought someone typing away, writing something. So the only way to protect software in those days was through copyright, uh, which I learned when I went to MIT. When I went to MIT, the front page of MIT listed this very interesting kid who had written this email system. And I was elected freshman body president, invited to the president's house in 1981. And the president of MIT said, Shiva, it's unfortunate you cannot protect software through patent. You should copyright it. So again, my parents weren't lawyers. You have to write away. There's no internet. You get your form. You fill it out. You have to submit all your code, all the uh, manuals. And in uh, August 30th, 1982, I was issued the first US copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email. And I share this story with you because that innovation did not occur in the military, did not occur at MIT, did not occur in Silicon Valley. It occurred at a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, exemplifying many other great innovations that take place outside the bounds of Silicon Valley and Kendall Square. I don't know if you know, a 14-year-old boy invented the first TV. His name was Philo Farnsworth. In Franklin, Idaho, you can look it up. And it took 60 years for Philo to get final recognition. If you go to Congress now, there's a big statue of Philo Farnsworth, the father of TV. I share this story with you because, you know, email was a very futuristic thing. The notion of a secretary using, first of all, you gotta understand, most of the people who used computers in those days were men, you know, wearing their white jackets. The concept of a secretary using a computer was unheard of. People, in fact, had simple text messaging, but the early pioneers thought it was impossible to create a system like this. But I was able to create it in this environment of collaboration with the collaboration of those secretaries who didn't see me as a threat, or I didn't see me talking down to them. I was their partner. I went off to MIT, uh, over, uh, earned four degrees uh, in many fields, electrical engineering, uh, in graphic design. I do, by the way, all the design you'll see on our website, I do all of that, believe it or not, all the memes, everything. Um, a, a degree in mechanical engineering, and I did my PhD in biological engineering. And throughout that entire journey, by the way, over 33 years, I wasn't just an academic. Believe it or not, I, I had a, I've had a full-time job since I was 14 years old. Even while I was a graduate student, I was always working. So I really believe in this concept of work and study, and it's a part of what I think we need in Massachusetts. You know, this entire concept of student loans that people are put under. I hire a lot of young students, and nothing against the young people. They're graduating college with not that many skills. They have a huge student loan burden, and they frankly don't know how to do a lot of things. And yet, if you look at the statistics right now, in Massachusetts, the latest report that came out at the end of last year, for every 17 skilled jobs, there's only one person available. Skilled jobs. So it's not like we have you know, an unemployment or an employment issue. We have an issue of high-skilled labor. And I find, found that when I started all of my companies. You know, as my companies went on, it was hard to find people in the workforce. You probably, you're nodding your head. Who could write a good oh, press release, right? Who had basic stuff, skills. Right? So it's almost like the educational system had its essentially itself become a racket. And there's, we have to wonder what, why Elizabeth Warren is making $350,000 on the one hand for one course she teaches, and she's talking about you know, st uh, students not uh, having appropriate access to education. So I've gone through this journey. I've built seven companies. I've made money. You know, it's hard to buy me. So in many ways, I'm an outsider coming into this, but I know the realities of what it takes to hire people, start companies, close sales, bring in money, 
you know, running a very tight organization. And it's a reality of what all of us face, which many politicians do not have to face, right? They run a different kind of business and they, they talk about this, but they really don't have any gut understanding of what it takes to do that. And so our campaign is really winning the future for you. You know, I've had huge success in predicting the future. You know, email was the futuristic thing. You know, the, one of the other companies I built in another area of email is very fascinating in 1993. You may remember when the web came, remember the internet came around? The internet had been around, but in 1993 is when the, have some water, when the web came. And the web basically made email, which was in 78 to 93, remember email was only in the office environment. But when the web came in 93, email became more accessible to all of us, if you remember that. And email started exploding. Um, I was a graduate student at MIT in 93, and an interesting phenomenon took place. The Clinton White House was getting tons of inbound email. 5,000, 10,000, and Clinton had interns who were manually reading these emails and categorizing them. That's how the White House was handling email. Probably shouldn't use the word interns with Clinton, but it's a different issue. But, uh, but that's how the White House was managing email. So the White House runs a contest to see could you write artificial intelligence technology to automatically read the emails and bucket them. I was a grad student. I ended up winning that contest. So in the middle of my PhD program, think about that. It's a big deal to get into MIT to do your PhD. I leave MIT, took a big risk. My parents were upset, my advisors were pissed off at me, and I start this company with no money at all. Think about that. And uh, we negotiated with the mayor of Cambridge to give us some space. I wrote a book on the internet. We, we, in the back of the book, we gave advertising to one of the internet. So anyway, we did all this ways to essentially bootstrap ourselves. And we built a company that would automatically read email, bucket it, and analyze it. And we grew that to around 250 million in value. Scratch, no VC money. I did 40 million in sales myself. But throughout that journey, the customers we got, we learned a lot. The United States Senate, I deployed the messaging system for the US Senate, so I, not, I know a lot about how the Senate operates. And I can talk more about that. The most recent company I'm doing now is modeling the human cell on the computer. You see, it takes 15 years to create a single drug. I don't know if anyone knows that. 15 years, $5 billion. And the way we create drugs is old-fashioned. It's not in the future. You know, we uh, do stuff in a test tube, then we kill a bunch of animals, and then we sort of shoot in the dark, we apply to the FDA, takes phase one, phase two, phase three. 15 years, that's why, and the drug that comes out, by the way, only works for 10% of the targeted population. That's why you ever watch those ads around 7 p.m. It says, don't do this, this will happen to you, this will happen to your, you know, your ears will fall, whatever. <laughs> but that's because the entire model is an old model. What we are now creating is a whole new way of, just like how we build airplanes. You know, airplanes are not built where you throw a test pilot in and you sort of, you pray. Everything's built on the computer. You understand the laws of physics. You use science. And then you go, you know, in a wind tunnel, and then you don't kill a lot of pilots. So that's the technology breakthrough we've done. We've used this as an innovation vehicle. We've spun out seven companies. In fact, we discovered a drug for pancreatic cancer in a record 11 months. And we got it allowed by the FDA. So what I'm trying to tell you is, thank you. So I'm an innovator. You know, I know what the future is. I can see the future. And the future for Massachusetts is a glowing future if we can execute on it. And that future is where I see a future for all of us, for all of our kids, 
where it, we have to re-educate our kids in technology and engineering education. You know, we should have Votech schools everywhere. MIT fundamentally is a high-paid, high-end Votech school. You know, I find it, I don't know if, what you guys, if you guys can help me, but it's very hard to find a really good engineer and a plumber, a really good plumber and electrician. I know there's two of them here, but they're good guys, but it's hard to find, three of them, but it's hard to find good, so there's, you know, people can make 100, 200, six-figure jobs as plumbers and electricians, but we don't have enough of them. We let in illegal immigrants, and people hire them, and so the, the, we don't support our own base of development. When you talk about healthcare, you know, I've been in healthcare all my life. You know, I, in India, I grew up where my grandmother was a practice traditional systems of Indian medicine. Everything I've been doing has been around healthcare. And the foundations of healthcare, what Obamacare or even, you know, Ryan Care, whatever you want to call it, they never talk about prevention. Right? It's all about drugs and knives. It's after you get sick. Think about it. The entire healthcare model is based on crisis management. It comes from the old model of uh, war. You know, it was about putting a soldier back, back on the battlefield from the Crimean War. It's not based on prevention. Doctors maybe get a half a course, you know, on nutrition. You know, we should be teaching our youth how to eat properly. Food does matter. There's a reason 36 million people in the United States have taken up yoga. It's not because they're all crazy. Because they recognize they're, they're looking for alternatives. So I know about that and about the, the integration of science where you can bring together science and tradition. You know, we've created a whole institute called Systems Health where I actually retrain MDs on this. And then when you start really looking at things like, you know, in the Indian tradition, there's two things that create wealth. You know, my mom used to say health is wealth. The other thing is education, knowledge. You know, the, there's two goddesses in the Indian tradition. One is called Lakshmi and the other one's called Saraswati. Lakshmi is a goddess of wealth, but she's extremely jealous of the goddess of knowledge, which is Saraswati. <laughs> so the goal goes that if you want to get wealth, you go get educated. But the key is what kind of education. If you go east of 495, you know, Massachusetts, I know, got rated number one, right? News News and World Report. But that concentration of knowledge and wealth is fundamentally in the Kendall Square east of 495. And we've left all of west of 495. But you know what, we can solve that with technology. If you look at what MIT's done, Khan Academy, they have new technologies now where you can take amazing elite level education and disperse it through the internet. And we can re-educate our teachers through this amazing educational tools that exist. And we need to be deploying that so it's not about charter schools or no charter schools. These are discussions, frankly, that are old-fashioned discussions because technology can actually resolve a lot of this. And it can educate the uneducated. It can actually bring teachers up to educate them in new ways. So fundamentally, you know, I want to win the future for you. And that future is a very amazing future that we can have. And it's not based on left or right, you know, or liberal or conservative. Um, but it's based on us actually deploying our knowledge and, you know, in science and innovation to solve real problems and looking at the future. We surely don't want to become like Connecticut where that's gone. Mm. Right, do we? No. So, but Massachusetts has a very interesting opportunity because east of 495, you know, innovation should not just occur in Kendall Square, <coughs> right? It should be occurring everywhere. You know, the interesting story about the story of email, and I'll end on this, is, you know, I never made a penny off email, I made money in other ways. Uh, about six years ago, my dear mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. I don't know if you know, it comes very quickly. When she first came here, she worked in a factory. 
a lot of asbestos fibers. But three months before she died in a beautiful suitcase, she'd left all the artifacts of my inventing email, all the computer code, all the tapes, all the beautiful copyright notices, everything. A friend of mine is a professor at Emerson came over and he said, Shiva, you invented email, why didn't you talk about this? And I said, David, look, you know, it's as an artist or an inventor, you don't really seek fame, you move on to your next project. Well, anyway, he invited, invited the editor of Time Magazine, the technology editor, Doug Ammett, the senior editor, and Doug spent three weeks looking at all this and he wrote a beautiful article called The Man Who Invented Email. And you can look it up on the internet, November 2011. After that, it went into the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian wanted it. Now you would think that should be an occasion for celebration, because I'm a personification of the American dream. But what you see, you talked about the liberal media, the so-called liberal media, which talks about inclusivity, right? You see, when I was at MIT, Kriti will tell you, I was on the front page many times for inventing many things. You know, I was a good Indian, a good minority. But when the facts came out that a 14-year-old kid had invented email, not at MIT, not in this elite institution, but it actually occurred over here in Newark, that sets off a bomb, right? It was almost like a new skull was found in Africa would reset the origin of humankind and had to be demolished. And what you'll see is all the vitriol that took place. People call me a fraud, all sorts of horrible names, Gawker Media, you may know of them, who, um, but you see, what they didn't understand about me is not only am I, am I committed to innovation, but I'm committed to truth and fighting. So I didn't just sit by. You know, last year we found one of the best lawyers, the same lawyer who went after Gawker with Hulk Hogan, and we got them. We sued for 35 million. 30 days after I sued, um, Gawker declared bankruptcy. And the karma and the irony of this whole thing is I got appointed to be the chairman, co-chairman of the Unsecured Creditors Committee, overseeing the sale of Gawker to Univision. All my three articles were pulled down, you know, and they gave me close to a million dollars. And I'm a fighter, you know, I've had to fight all my life. And I know how to fight big institutions of power. Um, tomorrow I'll be on InfoWars because several years ago I used our technology to expose Monsanto. You see, Monsanto actually is the institutions. And I used my technology to show that, for example, soy, 97% of the soy in this country, I don't know if you know, is genetically engineered, has 200% less glutathione, one of the most important antioxidants to human health. We published it, and uh, Monsanto went crazy. They used their academics to attack us, and we exposed that the academics were actually getting paid off by Monsanto in the front page of the New York Times. So what I'm trying to tell you is I know how to fight these guys, but I'm committed to actually solving problems. Um, I'm an outsider, but I'm learning the, this game of what we call uh, politics. And I would be honored to be your senator. I would be honored to win the future for you. And, um, you know, our team is here. I know the RTCs work in a way where we have to win your support, and I know I can't do it without your support. And I'd love all of you guys to be our delegates to the next convention and support our campaign. Thank you.